Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, April 30th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, May 1st, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, Jasmine? I'm doing good. So if you're listening to this on Sunday, it is May Day, International Workers Day. So workers of the world unite. That's right. That's right. And welcome to spring. You know, I see that the the weather's changing all over the country, which is great. I'm actually in Cincinnati right now, and it's uh, really interesting because there was rain, and I was so excited. (laughs) Excited for the rain. Yeah, you know, you remember our conversation a few weeks ago. It doesn't rain in Southern California, so I was like, oh my gosh. And, you know, California, Southern California is going through such a drought right now, so it's kind of sad, but... um. Yeah, happy to be at my hometown in spring. It's beautiful here. How's it looking in New York today? Well, it actually looks and feels like a spring day for a change because for a while it was real dicey. Like it kept getting real cold, real windy. The sun wouldn't really be out. It was, you know, it was frustrating me. Like I know spring is an in-between season, but winter was not letting go. Jeez, jeez. But today it looks good. I think the cherry blossoms are out. I might try to go see them. We'll see. Yes, definitely spend some time outside if you can. It's so healing. I was in the park yesterday for a couple hours. and I was just like, I just love nature. (laughs) It gives us everything that we, we need. So, all right. So on the docket for today in local news, we will be talking about uh, family court lawyers leaving the field. In national news, our story is about Joe Biden's resistance to canceling a significant amount of student loan debt. Our world news story is going to be about a dangerous heat wave in India and Pakistan. And for good news, we'll be talking about reforestation in Burundi. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news story. Emily, you're up. Hey, guys, this is Emily Scott here with the local news story for the week. Um, So I got the story from an April 29th New York Times article by Jonah E. Bromwich titled Family Court Lawyers Flee Low-Paying Jobs. Parents and Children Suffer. Uh, New York hasn't raised the attorney's fees since 2004, creating a a shortage that has denied the most vulnerable their constitutional right to a lawyer. The article explains, quote, for the past two years, Amanda Sanchez's right to see her young son has depended on the crowded calendar of Helen Bois, the lawyer appointed to represent her in New York's family court. In the spring of 2020, Ms. Sanchez left her son Ricky, then two, with his father, an ex-boyfriend, while she underwent an operation that kept her in intensive care for nearly a month. When she got out, her ex refused to let Ricky go until Ms. Bua uh, obtained an order that forced him to. But at other times, Ms. Bua, who earlier this year had 129 other clients, 30 of them children, has been out of reach. And on one such occasion, Ms. Sanchez, unable to turn to Ms. Bua for advice, felt she had no choice but to hand Ricky back over to her ex. Ms. Bua has stopped taking on new cases as she agrees that she is often stretched too thin. I'm sorry, quote, Ms. Bua has stopped taking on new cases as she agrees that she is often stretched too thin. The work is never done, she said in a court filing. I rarely feel completely prepared. 
Lawyers like Ms. Bua, who are known as panel attorneys and who represent children and indigent adults, have been departing the system by the dozens over the past decade, leaving many of the most vulnerable New Yorkers without their constitutionally guaranteed right to counsel. The attorneys say that their ranks are thinning because their salaries have not risen in close to two decades, and they are now fighting in court to change that. In a hearing last week, a lawyer for several New York-based bar associations asked a state Supreme Court judge to set new salary rates and to remove restrictive caps that can keep such lawyers from being paid for cases when they exceed a certain number of hours. The judge, Lisa Headley, has yet to make a decision. Panel attorneys can represent children or adults who cannot afford to pay their own legal fees in family and criminal cases. In New York City's family court, where across five courthouses, hundreds of cases are heard each day. Such lawyers are on call on specific days to take on new cases. New York's panel attorneys have not received a raise since 2004, when their hourly rates were set at $75 for felonies and family court matters and $60 for misdemeanors. Even if those sums had simply risen with inflation, they would be about $114 and $93 per hour. Panel attorneys in South Dakota, where the cost of living is half what it is in New York are paid $101 per hour. Because these attorneys are independent contractors unaffiliated with organizations like the Legal Aid Society or Bronx Defenders, they have to pay for their own health care, office spaces, and other expenses, further driving down their effective salaries. As a result, there are fewer lawyers willing to work these high-stress, high-stakes jobs. Cynthia Godso, a professor at Brooklyn Law School who previously worked in family court, said that the failure to raise the rates reflected the fundamental indifference of New York City political authorities to the lives of the most vulnerable. uh, Family court, where these court cases happen, is a poor people's court by definition, she said. Not paying these attorneys remotely close to what they need to be able to do a good job reflects either ignorance about or disdain for those people's fundamental rights as parents and their lives as families. Over the past six years in Manhattan alone, the number of panel attorneys available to take on new cases in family court has nearly halved to 39 from 70. In the Bronx, during that period, the number dropped to 48 from 80. And each borough has added only one new panel attorney since January 2021. Uh, Brooklyn and Queens have each lost about a fifth of their panel attorneys since 2011. The lack of lawyers has left those who remain vastly overworked with several refusing to take on new cases altogether. When attorneys are not available, catastrophe often follows. In a letter filed in court, one panel attorney, Frederica Bashir, said that consequences frequently included, uh, one, victims of domestic violence being denied protection from abusers, leaving those people vulnerable to being harmed again, two, children being held in foster care because there were no lawyers to seek their return to their parents or guardians, and three, people being wrongly accused of domestic violence who, because an order of protection has been issued, are forced to leave their homes without being heard in court. Uh, Quote, Judge Headley granting the rates and removing the caps, as the lawyers have said, have asked it would be up to the state legislature and uh, Governor Kathy Hochul to raise the panel attorney's salaries. The state did not include that money in its recent past budget. At the hearing last week, a lawyer for the state, Anjali Bhatt, said that the governor and legislature were working on a solution and that Ms. Hochul uh, does not oppose doubling the rates, but did not provide any more information. A spokeswoman for the governor, Hazel Crampton Hayes, said that Ms. Hochul supports a fair rate and is working to reach a solution to ensure indigent parties have effective assistance in counsel. 
A quote last week for three days, panel attorneys all over New York declined to take on new clients, seeking to call attention to the issue. On Thursday, they mounted demonstrations in New York City, Syracuse, Long Island, and a suburb of Rochester. Quote, if the lawyers fail to get their rates, the raise, it is their clients who will bear the brunt. Um, so I thought this was a really interesting and important story. I didn't know much about panel attorneys. Um, I know that it's almost a cliche that they're overworked and that their caseloads are so high, but I thought this was a really interesting story digging into the reasons behind that, some of the more, uh, some of the reasons behind that, as well as um, what they're, the panel attorneys are trying to do to solve the problem. Thank you so much for that story, Emily. Um, this is really disheartening considering all of the children who are put in or kept in or refused um, assistance to be handled the right way. I mean, I guess I can understand the challenges um, that she presented in uh, that you presented in this this article. But in the same context, there are so many people who need um, that help. And I know it's really expensive as well um, when you're going through family court. I've I've had friends who are lawyers who try to do uh, pro bono stuff for people that are dealing with that, at least under explaining things to them, just because it's so expensive to go through the whole process. And it seems like a lot of times it doesn't just end with one court hearing. It's something that goes on for a while, uh, depending on how the circumstances change. I wouldn't put this in the same exact category as stuff as like um, teaching or nursing being a caretaker, like things that are um, forms of work that are like feminized and often underpaid and not taken seriously as, you know, a profession where you should be, you know, getting paid a decent wage to do it. Mm -hmm. But people sort of expect because of the type of work that you should just be so compelled by like love of humankind that you're going to do it even if you're not being paid what you're worth. Yeah. Um, but I would say that it, it does seem like it's sort of similar, like because, you know, like if you're like a corporate lawyer, you know, or you work for um, businesses or whatever, like obviously you get paid a lot more. But when you do something where it's like you're a public defender or um, working specifically dealing with family court issues with children, we see that like as a society, we've deemed it acceptable for those to be the most overworked and you know, let people to be paid the least, yeah. which is, you know, people can't eat based off of feeling like they're doing the right thing or, you know, they're doing something honorable. Like it's still labor and it's labor intensive. Yeah, it's tough, too, because there's so many um, differences in the laws uh, with 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 that specific um, topic or um, portion of law by state by state, city to city, you know, it's it's one of those things that you have to be well versed in and it can change um at any time. So that's why I was saying like, you know, a couple of people that I know have, who have had to go through that process whether it's for child support or custody battles, you know, it doesn't end with like one trial. It it's ongoing. So I I can imagine it being very draining as well on the lawyers because it is so um, interpersonal and complicated. Um, so yeah, I mean, people definitely deserve to be paid for the work that they do and for the profession that they have studied hard to obtain. They do. Um, and I would also say there's a lot of, um, 
or I, I feel like there's not enough scrutiny of like the family court or system or like child protective system. Like there's so many people that get put into that process mm-hmm. when it's really not necessary or like certain groups of people are over policed or um, surveilled by like those systems which is probably what adds to like there being like this overwhelming number of people that have to deal with court. Like I I wonder how many of it, it, how much of it are situations where it's like the family just needs more resources or there wasn't anything actually wrong, but because someone made a phone call or someone is, you know, maybe it could be your ex or something is just deciding that they want to make your life hell you're now in this like never ending spiral with you and your children. So yeah, it's like, I wonder like what the percentages are of like the cases that are like maybe frivolous or, you know, all that's really needed is the family needs more resources. But the answer is like court, you know, in these long dragged out, often traumatic court situations. Yeah. Yeah, and the counseling that has to go to the child after should be considered as well, you know, because that that process, you know, of what you know going through that with your parents and and the results how they change or what you know what they result to is definitely tough for a child to understand. I'm sure, especially over a long period of time as well, it really puts a strain on the relationship with with the parents and the child for whatever situation. So, right. Um, yeah, there's a long read in Mother Jones that came out earlier this month. It's under the big feature, and it's the title is I Have Studied Child Protective Services for Decades. It Needs to be Abolished. Mm. It's shockingly easy for CPS to destroy poor Black families, and it was written by Dorothy E. Roberts. So if you'd like a deep dive into, you know, some of the things that she's witnessed and the people she's talked to, I think it's interesting. Um, And not at all saying that there aren't cases where like there's people who are abused or where there really is a, you know, there's not someone needs to intervene. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but um, these things are like, they tend to disproportionately affect marginalized groups and that's something we're thinking about like when we're having these conversations about family court absolutely really important um topic to discuss and great segment all right we're gonna go ahead and jump into our first music break of the day this track is called beep derple <laughs> say that three times fast and it's by Corey weeds we'll be right back Thank you. 
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Beep derple. Like we, well, we're coming back from our break, but I was saying that that sounds like it's a strain of weed or something. <laughs> it mean, took me a minute to realize it's, it's supposed to be a play on deep purple. Right. <laughs> I, love, I love the interesting song titles. I think it's so cool um, when artists do that because it's like, yeah. what is that about? It always has like a, a backstory. Anyway, it's the people going. (laughs) Welcome back, guys, to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. All right. Next up for our national news story. I thought this is a really important story. We haven't really talked about this much on the show. This story comes from an article on CNN.com. The title is Why Biden is Resisting the Pressure to Cancel $50,000 in Student Loan Debt Per Borrower. Borrower. The author is Katie Labosco. And it is from um, Thursday, April 28th. President Joe Biden has a student loan debt forgiveness problem. Lawmakers within his party continue to put the issue front and center, urging the president to cancel $50,000 for each of the 43 million federal student loan borrowers, something he has shot down repeatedly, including on Thursday. Biden has already canceled more student loan debt than any other president by making it easier for students defrauded by for-profit colleges or those working in the public sector to receive forgiveness through extended existing relief programs. The president also recently extended the pandemic-related payment pause for the fourth time under his administration, moving the expiration date from May 1st to August 31st. But those moves have done little to ease the political pressure. On Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called on Biden yet again to cancel $50,000 in student loan debt for each federal borrower by ex- by an executive action. Borrowers don't need their debts paused. They need them erased, Schumer said on the Senate floor. With the flick of a pen, President Biden could provide millions upon millions of student loan borrowers a new lease on life, the New York Democrat added. The pressure is ramping up in a midterm election year, and as recent polling shows that Biden's rating approvals continues to drop with young Americans. More than 100 Democratic members of Congress signed a letter sent to Biden last month to urge him to cancel a meaningful amount of student debt. A handful of progressive lawmakers, including Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, Representative Pramila Jayapo of Washington State, appeared with student debt cancellation organizers outside the the White House on Wednesday to show their support. So far, Biden has resisted the pressure to cancel $50,000 in student loan debt for each borrower. On Thursday, he doubled down on that stance while leaving the door open to some kind of student debt cancellation. I'm considering dealing with some debt reduction. I'm not considering $50,000 debt reduction, Biden said at the White House after unveiling a new funding for Ukraine. But I'm in the process of taking a hard look at whether or not they, they are going whether or not there are going, there will be additional debt forgiveness. And I'll have an answer on that in the next couple of weeks. Later, Thursday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki 
confirmed that there's been no conclusion of any processes internally yet. There are several reasons why Biden may be resisting the pull from the left wing of his party. Legal authority is unclear. Biden made it clear during his presidential campaign after the COVID-19 pandemic began that he supported partial cancellation of federal student debt. His campaign proposal called for immediately canceling a minimum of $10,000 in student debt per person as a response to the pandemic, as well as forgiving all undergraduate tuition-related federal student debt from two to four-year public colleges and universities for those borrowers earning up to $125,000 a year. But he also urged Congress to take action to cancel debt, rather than, rather than said he could use executive power to do so. It's not totally clear that the president's executive authority allows him to broadly wipe away student debt. Last year, Biden directed law lawyers at the Department of Education and Justice to evaluate whether he does, in fact, have the power to broadly cancel federal debt. The administration has not disclosed those findings. But a September 2020 memo from lawyers at Harvard University's Legal Service Center and its Project on Predatory Student Lending argues that Congress has given the power to broadly cancel federal debt to the Department of Education through a law known as the Higher Education Act. It gives the Education Secretary the authority to create and to cancel or modify debt owed under federal student loan programs, the memo says. Inflation is a key issue for voters. It may sound counterintuitive to borrowers who would benefit from debt cancellation, but some experts say forgiving student loan debt would add to inflation. This is a problem for Biden and other Democrats who are getting blamed for the rising gas prices and grocery prices. Millions of people would be able to spend money, roughly $4 billion a month per one estimate, on things other than monthly student loan payments, and people may be more likely to make big purchases like cars or houses if they no longer have student debt hanging over their heads. A report from the Committee for the Responsible Federal Budget estimated that canceling all $1.6 trillion in federal student loan debt would increase inflation, increase the inflation rate by 0.1 to 0.5 percentage points over 12 months. Canceling $50,000 per borrower would result in a smaller increase, but the group did not estimate that effect. It's not gigantic, said Mark Golwin, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. In a normal, normal inflation environment, it wouldn't be a big deal, but we're in a very precarious situation right now and a risk of inflation spiraling out of control is important, he added. Canceling debt could benefit a lot of wealthy people. Biden had repeatedly said he is committed to making sure wealthy Americans pay their fair share and has proposed raising taxes on the richest Americans. Canceling student debt could run afoul of, the, of that policy goal. Canceling student debt for everyone would disproportionately benefit higher wealth households like those with doctors and lawyers because those bars tend to have more student debt after attending graduate school. As of 2019, households with graduate degrees owe 56% of the outstanding education debt. A more targeted approach, like canceling debt for borrowers who earn less than a certain income threshold or canceling loans borrowed only for undergraduate degrees, could help make sure more people benefit from this debt cancellation. If you did even basic targeting, then way more of the money would go to low-income borrowers, said Adam Looney, a non-resident senior fellows at the Brookings Institution who has studied student debt relief policies. Still, canceling student loan debt wouldn't solve a fundamental problem with college affordability. 
Biden also campaigned on making community colleges free, a move that would require an act of Congress, but that proposal was cut from his Build Back Better agenda. If you don't fix the system, these problems are going to reoccur and we'll be back in the same crisis as we are now, Looney added. Biden has signaled he would be open to excluding high-income borrowers from student loan debt cancellation, arguing last year that the government shouldn't forgive debt for people who went to Harvard and Yale and Penn. Saki said Thursday that the president continues to consider some type of means testing when it comes to loan cancellation. He has talked in the past about how he doesn't believe that millionaires or billionaires should benefit or even people from the highest income. So that is certainly something he would be looking at, she said. To date, Biden's actions have delivered more than $17 billion in targeted student debt relief to 725,000 borrowers. About $3.2 billion of that was canceled for borrowers who had been defrauded by their for-profit colleges. So that's the end of the article. Um, this is this, just the fact that these reasons, okay, I can understand like who has the right or whatever, making sure he has the executive power, whatever, right? Even if he doesn't have the executive power, Congress could come back and veto or they could do whatever they need to do if they didn't agree. But I don't agree with $10,000 being enough for anyone. Like that's not even a drop in the bucket for people who have advanced degrees. And now with inflation and all of the issues that happened, a lot of people went back to school during the pandemic because they felt the need to extend their education, their opportunities. So there's going to be more debt coming from this time that we just were not paying back. You know, this problem is going to continue. So it, all of this is semantics to me. Like I understand wanting to make sure it benefits the people who are on the bottom, but come on, like what is $10,000 really going to do for anyone? Yeah, I personally don't believe in all of the back and forth about like being worried that because there are some people that you perceive to be well off, like because they might be able to benefit from something, then let's not do it at all. Yeah. Or let's make it so complicated that even the lower income people you claim to be so worried about, it's more complex for them if you don't just forgive it. If it has to be like you got to fill stuff out. You got to, you know, I guess, um, what do you call it? Not testify, but confirm like how much money you make. Like means testing is, I guess, what the term is. I think they should just wipe it clean and we need to have an overhaul of how higher education is dealt with in this country because the cost of going to get a degree has risen so high and so in such a short time, it's really a shame. And it's not, it's not like that money is going towards actually educating the students. I believe a lot of that yeah. is going towards like these inflated administrations mm -hmm. and, you know, paying, you know, it's like you have more, admins and support staff and stuff than the than like actual people like teaching the classes or like the people that are doing the bulk of the teaching yeah are getting paid like a fraction of what some of the administrators are getting paid so where is all this inflated tuition even really going to i think like sometimes it's, it's going to you know the building up of campuses and things like that my undergraduate school we used to always say UC stood for under construction because every year it's there was a new, a new building. building. There's something new going new... up. Yeah. And it's just like, do we need all this? 
is this it's necessary? like all the extra stuff you know and it's like i understand um it's like that like sometimes like athletics thing yeah. you know like all of this money is going to support things that are not strictly about like the learning environment and actually providing a quality education is going towards other things and you also have a lot of people that didn't actually get the degree but they have debt yeah. you know and like you might be poor black brown immigrant you might be in a situation where maybe everybody in your family didn't go to college so maybe you're more likely to get caught up in like a predatory situation or not fully understand yep. the terms or like you, maybe you do understand, but like a lot of us, maybe you were brought up to think like, Oh, if I get a degree, then that means I'm going to get a job that pays X amount of money that does yeah. not always pan out. Exactly. For you most know? people, it seems like it doesn't, you know? And on top of all of that, like the, the hardest part about, well, one of the things that I really um, that really got me in this article was saying that he would forgive, um, he would provide this for people who went to public colleges and universities. Like, what what is the difference if you went to a private school or a public school? Like, does that really matter when the debt is in, involved? You know, a lot of times people go to private schools, you know, um, more known institutions because they think that's going to make them more likely to get good employment and sustainable um, positions and they, they make those choices. They may make those choices to get out of a bad situation, to leave their hometown so that they can have an opportunity to do something better and excel in life. So exactly. be, that's not fair, you know, Very like, true. and it's, it's, you know, these private institutions always cost more. Um, but in the same context, you know, you think about the people who are first generation college graduates, which I am um, in my family and, the idea of getting accepted into one of these prestigious institutions is something that, you know, your whole family is so excited for you. Like it really means something. Um, and now you're telling me that I made a bad choice because I chose a better school. It's just, it's just really messed up. Like the way it's, that he's yeah. trying it's to consider it doesn't do, make any sense. It's damned if you do damned if you don't, because then if you don't go to school, if you don't get a higher education and you're therefore unable to advance because let's be real in a lot of these jobs i i get frustrated sometimes when people talk about like oh this degree is useless or that degree is worthless just because you're not using the subject matter that you got the degree in doesn't mean that having a degree makes no difference for you like in the job market it absolutely does because when people say that the bachelor's has in a lot of ways become the new high school diploma, they're not lying. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff where the software will just kick you out of the application process immediately for certain jobs because you don't have a degree. So it's really not fair to make it seem like people are just, you know, willy nilly going to school. Like we live in a society that has made it like a prerequisite or just basic positions that have benefits sometimes they don't even really be having benefits or like pay that well but yeah. it has become a thing where like it's a barrier for you if you did not get a degree so you know you can't blame people for doing what they think they need to do just in order to you know be able to take care of themselves because best believe if they didn't do it and they just went to high school and then they couldn't get a job the same people complaining would be telling them 
condemning them because like well you should have got up off your ass and went to school so you know it's like no matter what they're gonna find some kind of way to try to twist the shit into blaming you but you know when you have a lot of people dealing with a lot of debt they gotta worry about you know their health care is tied to their employment so they're afraid to leave their job if it doesn't pay them well or whatever you have way too many people that are just like crushed and they don't have the freedom to like make the best choices for themselves. They're, you know, that you don't have the mental or emotional energy or strength, or you don't have the time to like build solidarity with other people. Cause you're so worried about being on this treadmill of debt, you know? And I, th- I think that's why they don't really want to get rid of it for everybody. Cause it, debt is a way to control people and to crush people. And the more they can do that, you know, the less they have to worry about any lasting changes happening if everyone's just worried about debt. Yeah, it's definitely a control mechanism in this country um, for him to be shipping out all this money to help Ukraine and, you know, things like that when people in America are going through inflation, going through job joblessness, um, they are unhoused, there are children who don't have resources. Like, there are so many other ways to spend money. And the idea that it, it the government is against us getting better is what I'm hearing from this article. Like it's, it's just capitalism at its finest. And at this point, imperialism at its finest, because by doing that, they're keeping us under control as well as others. They are setting a standard and a bar and an understanding for people to be reminded of or to have to fall victim to or to have to maintain their life because you need them for some reason. It's it's just bizarre. It's bizarre. I, I mean, I, I don't even know if families today are telling their, their children to go to college. You know, that conversation, I think, has changed in a lot of families. But in the same context, it's like, damn if you do, damn if you don't. So get off your ass, Biden, and do something that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we definitely see that, you know, the money is long, like, in this country you know there's always money for war there's always money to bail people out who own business like people like rich people corporations there's always money to for that but when it comes to this it's oh no we can't do it it's just so so stop playing in my face exactly nothing's happened since we didn't pay for the last two years so what fucking exactly and the sky did not fall down you know i'm I, for one, like I, for the first time in a very long time, actually was able to save, yeah. you know, and not like be stressed out because I didn't have this big chunk coming out of my um, pay every month. Yeah. You know, it's like we need to get this millstone off of everybody's neck. If some of the people that benefit are already well off, so what? Exactly. It's well off people benefiting from the shit that they're already doing and it didn't stop them. That's Why? human, right? You know? That's human. Can we can we actually serve humanity for something good for once? And who cares about people benefiting more? Benefiting in life should be regular. That's a human right. So why why are you putting your foot on our neck at every chance you get? I'm just It's such a lie. It's it's really such a lie. So people are so full of shit. Like you're not worried about how it's unfair to the poor people because some of the because what you're, what everyone is arguing for would help literally everyone. Like if you forget exactly. them all, everyone would be better off. 
we're going to go ahead and take a music break, y'all. Obviously, we need to come up for air. The next track is called Energy, and it's by Sapa the Great. We'll be right back. amazing bands at an outstanding local venue for an evening of rock and music. Join us on Friday, May 20th at 7.30 for a night with 7th Grade Girl Fight, Dirt Bikes, Barrette, and Castle Black, and none other than Ridgewood's own Bar Frida, 801 Seneca Avenue. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased at the venue. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and next up we'll have our world news story. Um, so this was um, a story that was very very sad and disheartening. Uh, it's concerning the intense heat waves that have taken over in India and Pakistan. Uh, this article is from Reuters. It was written by Gibran Ahmad and Samit Khanna. Uh, the title is Pakistan, India Real Under Intense Heat Wave. Pakistan issued a heat warning after the hottest march in 61 years while in parts of neighboring India, schools were shut and streets deserted as an intense heat wave on Friday showed no signs of abating. Pakistan's Federal Minister for Climate Change, Sherry Rahman, urged the federal and provincial governments to take precautionary measures to manage the intense heat wave, which touched highs of 47 degrees Celsius or 116.6 degrees Fahrenheit in parts of the country. Um, and just as an aside, um, there has been, um, for a long time, it has been believed that a temperature, a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius, which is 95 degrees Fahrenheit at 100% humidity, or 115 degrees Fahrenheit at 50% of humidity, 
was the maximum that a human could endure before they couldn't adequately regulate their body temperature, which would potentially cause heat stroke or death over a prolonged exposure. Um, and that is from Penn State University. So we're talking about temperatures that are over that limit of 116.6 degrees Fahrenheit in this part of the world. So just keep that in mind. South Asia, particularly India and Pakistan, are faced with what has been a record-breaking heat wave. It started in early April and continues to leave the people gasping in whatever shade they find, Raymond said in a statement. Temperatures were predicted to rise by 6 to 8 degrees Celsius above average temperatures after the hardest march on record since 1961, she said. More than a billion people are at risk of heat-related impacts in the region, scientists have warned, linking the early onset of an intense summer to climate change. For the first time in decades, Pakistan has gone from winter to summer without the spring season, Raymond said. The government has also told provincial disaster management authorities to prepare urgently for the risk of flash flooding in northern mountainous provinces due to rapid glacial melting, Raymond said. Glaciers in the Himalaya, Hindu Kush, and Karakoram mountain ranges have melted rapidly, creating thousands of glacial lakes in northern Pakistan, around 30 of which are at risk of sudden hazardous flooding, the Climate Change Ministry said, adding around 7 million people were vulnerable. A senior scientist at the India Meteoro Mete Meteorological Department said on Friday, heat conditions would persist for at least the next three days, but that temperatures would fall after the arrival of monsoons expected in some parts in May. The health problems triggered by the heat wave were posing a bigger worry than the expected fourth wave of COVID-19, doctors in India said. We are getting many patients who have suffered heat stroke or other heat-related problems, said Mona Desai, former president of Ahmed Ahmedabad Medical Association in the western Indian state of Gujarat. She said that 60 to 70 percent of the patients were school-age complaining of vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal colic, weakness, and other symptoms. Roads were deserted in Bhubaneswar in India's eastern state of Odisha, where schools have been shut while neighboring West Bengal advanced the school summer break by a few days. In Pakistan, the lead up to the religious holiday of Eid was dampened by the intense heat and regular power cuts as most of the population refrained from eating food and drinking water during daylight hours for the holy month of Ramadan. The increased demand for power from rising temperatures combined with fuel shortages and infrastructure issues put pressure on Pakistan's electricity system, leading to regular power cuts known as load shedding. Residents of northern Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province said that at times the power was out for between 10 and 14 hours a day, leaving few options to cool down. The weather is unreasonably hot these days, but the hours-long power load shedding further added to our miseries, said Abdul Salam Khan, owner of a shoe brand in the northern city of Pesh Peshawar. 
Khan said the heat wave had dented an expected surge in shoe sales ahead of Eid as many people stayed home in the intense heat while their stores struggled to operate during power cuts. Um, so yeah, that's what's currently happening in India at the moment. And um, just briefly, I wanted to mention as well, on Earth Day, which was um, the 22nd of April, a 50-year-old man named Wynne Bruce, who was a climate activist and a Buddhist, self-immolated. So he set himself on fire in front of the U.S. Supreme Court to call attention to um, the severity of the climate crisis. Um, and I just, I thought that those two things, these two stories are connected and it's not getting enough attention um, for how serious this is. Wow, that's that's a really intense um, and obviously awful that so many people are going through this and continue to go through this, you know. Um, it's like a part of their life. There are so many things that we could make better if, if the powers that be actually paid attention to the need of humanity, you know, all over the world. It's not just, um, I, it's hard to even imagine going through that in the States, you know, but in the same context, we are just as susceptible as anyone else. And I don't think we're going to be able to be in this position too much longer where things are you know, livable to some extent, um, you know, imagine that, imagine what that's going to be like. It's awful. I mean, well, it's, it's not, I'm not going to say that it's exactly the same as what is happening in, um, India and Pakistan at the moment, but this is already happening here. I mean, every summer in New York city, people die of the heat. Yeah. There's blackouts, you know, the grid gets overloaded. People are stuck in elevators. They're stuck in their apartments. Like elderly people can't get out. They have to open cooling centers for people to go to to try to cool down. So, you know, I think the U.S. is, you know, it's a very large country and each part of the country has its own climate. So maybe what's happening in one corner doesn't necessarily affect someone that's, you know, in a different region. But we we can and we do see that happening already, and it's not going to get better unless we force it to get better. Absolutely. And, you know, there's we should definitely um, just all be a bit more mindful of the causes of these things. I mean, it, obviously, I had to look up just a few minutes ago, like how this whole thing works, a heat wave and what causes it and things of that nature, just to be, you know, more aware, because this could happen to us at any time. But definitely, uh, my heart goes out to people in India and Pakistan that are going through this right now. Um, right. I mean, I do hope that the monsoon season, which is coming soon, brings some relief. But they were just talking in the article about worries about flooding, because the glaciers have melted. I'm like, well, so if the monsoon does come, it might cool things down, but is that going to then add more problems with the yeah. flooding with the melted glaciers in the mountains? So, wow. Yeah, definitely keep going to keep an eye on this story. And if you're interested, um, there were also many, many scientists around the world that have been protesting, like locking themselves to buildings. Many have been arrested to call attention to the climate crisis. 
um, and they're affiliated with Scientist Rebellion. They do have a website, so if you're listening and you're interested, you can go to scientistrebellion.com to learn more about their efforts and see ways that you can get involved because, you know, you can't just turn away from it. Like, climate catastrophe is here now, and we have to do something urgently. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that resource and the story. Jasmine and Emily, what is the good news this week? Yeah, fitting compared, you know, seeing what the last story was. This is a good one. All right, Emily back here for the good news for the week. Um, So this story comes from an April 21st article. um, And I found this through that Future Earth uh, news roundup, I'm pretty sure. Um, Because as I find most things. And the article is written by someone whose name I am... may not be pronouncing correctly, and I apologize in advance, but Diu Done Endanezerewe. And it's translated by Kate Fahey, so it was not originally written in English. And it's on mangabay.com, titled, In Burundi, One-Time Combatants Who Raised Forests are Now Raised Seedlings. Um, I'm going to try saying that name one more time. It's, I believe it's Diu Done Endanezerewe. Alrighty, so um, the article pulled out the following highlights, um, which are all quoted, and um, it kind of gives the rundown of the story. In 2018, Burundi launched a vast national reforestation program to boost the country's dwindling forest cover, which will run until 2025. And Burundi has just 6.6% of its original forests remaining, the legacy of a brutal civil war in which forests weren't spared the violence inflicted by either side. Uh, Today, the formerly warring uh, factions are working together on the reforestation project that has been hailed as a fantastic initiative, especially as the planted trees are varied. And finally, however, key civil society stakeholders and nature conservation are calling for these efforts to be followed by awareness-raising campaigns among local populations and communities to protect seedlings that have already been planted. Some more background on this story from the article. Uh, quote, in 1993, the democratically elected president of Burundi, Melchior Ndadeye, was assassinated in a coup. At the time, the country's democratic institutions were still only three months old. The incident set off a long simmer, uh, set off long simmering ethnic tensions, uh, leading to what would become a decade-long civil war. We ate whatever we found on our path. We knocked down trees here and there for cooking. The forest hit us and fed us during the civil war, said Enda Yuwondi Joseph, a war veteran and now a member of a local reforestation committee in central Burundi. During the war, much of the country's forests were destroyed. Today, only about 6.6 of the original forests remain, according to the Burundian Office for Environmental Protection, or OBPE. A quote, a Burundi saying goes, when two elephants fight, it is the trees that perish. This adage highlights the war that Burundi has experienced when the forests perished amid the conflict. Today, communities are working on reforestation alongside the Burundian military and police in an act that's more than just symbolic. They represent large communities that use a lot of wood for cooking. Many uh, former warring factions today have joined together, integrating veterans to make up security and defense groups. Quote, in 2018, the government launched a tree planting campaign called Iu Burundi Urambaye, which literally translates as a well-dressed Burundi. And uh, 
quote, since the start of the campaign four years ago, at least 150 million trees of various species have been planted across the country over an area of 50,000 hectares or 123,600 acres. Quote, Mindert Brewer, an, uh, an ecology writer and researcher, said, quote, uh, said, reforestation in Burundi is very important. Brewer, best known for his conservation publications, in particular his latest work, Central African Forest Forever, said the analog forestry uh, policy adopted by Burundi, which replicates the plant diversity found in a natural forest rather than focusing on planting as many trees as possible, is important. How reforestation happens is especially important. Analog forestry is a good method of reforestation, Brewer said. A forest with several different trees is better than a forest with only a few different species. And I thought this was a great story uh, because it sounds to me, you know, it's it's not just environmental justice that's happening, but it's um, it's socially groups coming together for the betterment of the environment and, you know, and humanity in general. That was a great story. Thank you so much. You know, we never really talk about, well, I don't know, maybe we have um, reforestation and the process and how important it is. Um, but it's definitely good to hear good things on that front, for sure. But yeah, I mean, it is an example of, you know, that's a, a lot of forest that was devastated. But, you know, even with only 6% left, like there is something that can be done consistently. And I'm glad to see that they're doing it. Absolutely. Um, and I hope it gets replicated in other parts of the world. Yeah, definitely taking this as an encouraging moment to get involved. Um, however you can, you know, I remember growing up, we definitely did cleaning park projects and things of that nature. And it seemed like, you know, during those times in the eighties, <laughs> we were doing things, um, you know, that, that seemed like small contributions, but it did kind of make us more aware of our environment. So definitely good to keep stories like that on the home front. Thank you so much for that. I think we did it again, Jasmine. We did. (laughs) And we have made it to the end of the show. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. And we are going to play you out with a tribute to a fallen hero. Um. This last track is from the group Earth, Wind & Fire. Classic, classic group. Definitely learned and listened a lot to them growing up. Did you as well? Yeah, like they're very, they're brilliant. You know, they really were, they and are, still are like innovators, extremely creative, incredible musicianship. And um, this past Wednesday, their saxophone player, Andrew Woolfolk, passed away sadly at the age of 71. So rest in peace to him. Uh, Condolences to his loved ones and his friends and bandmates. Absolutely. So we, our final track today is dedicated to him. This is Reasons by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Happy Sunday, y'all. See you next week. Happy Sunday. Happy May Day.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.